0: Their charm is non-existent. Years ago, they worked in radio. Today, they don't remember a moment of it. They are the only grown men ever to fail a preschool spelling test. Every time they go for a swim, women and children run for their lives. Alien abductors return them to Earth with the words... We do not understand, tattooed on their foreheads. If they would to give you directions, you'd end up at the closest pub, no matter where you really wanted to go. Their smell precedes them. The way of fart precedes watering eyes. They are the most interesting men in podcasting.
1: Hola, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. A special edition, and let me say, you are listening to the designated and authorised most interesting men in podcasting.
2: Well, yes, podcasting in metropolitan Sydney, Australia, maybe.
1: (laughs) In Penned Hills. (laughs) In Penned Hills. (laughs) We don't always drink beer, but when we do, we drink Doseki. Oh, really? Cheers, my friend. Oh, they came good. So let let me read the letter that came with the carton of beers. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Hola Mojo Radio Crew It was great to hear That when you do drink beer You drink Dos Equis. As you are supporting us By moving on to Dos Equis And ditching that other Mexican beer We wanted to return the favour And show our support For your quest oh. to become Hashtag The most interesting men In podcasting <laughs> We are chuffed to hear you love our distinctive Mexican brew as much as we do here at Dos Equis, here's a couple of cartons for you to enjoy responsibly. Follow our quest at Dos Equis, AU, to hashtag seek interesting. Stay thirsty, my friends. Sincero, more Equis. Oh, gotta be happy
2: with that. Gotta Cheers be happy to, to hear that. Oh, that's not a bad drop, actually. So,
1: I have to say that this is pretty cool because this was done as an experiment. Now, the payoff is that because we do the show for free, we've got a carton of booze, which is brilliant. And <laughs> beer <it's> economy. Just, <laughs> I love it. I've always been a Doseki fan and I don't always drink beer, which is true, but when I do, uh, I'm a Dos Equis man. And I just love the fact that the brand hunted us down. It was a very interesting journey getting to us, but the brand... Just send us a card and say thanks. That's all. That's all it requires. We're not. We're not hard to please.
2: No, not hard to please. Now, Tim Tam's next. <laughs> <laughs> Let's work our way through our repertoire of what it. we require in the studio for a fulfilled show. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and you know the other good thing about this is the, the timing's fantastic because the Withered Oaks have our season home game this Friday night. So that case is going under my arm and down for full time.
1: I reckon. Well, you only get twelve beers. Only oh, twelve. That's not a case. That's half a case. Yeah, well we've got to share it. <laughs> it's my idea. I want at least a couple of couple of beers out of it. Let's go.
0: Radio
1: show. So, folks, while we uh, while we finish our beers, uh, you know the good thing about podcasting? You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. <laughs> it's right. unedited. Back in the day, we'd had Charlie Fox knocking the door saying, all right, you guys, that's enough. Get back to Billy the Pigs. That's right. Uh, the interesting thing about podcasting is that you can do what you want. However, we do what we want completely for free, apart from a couple of cartons that get slipped under our door from <laughs> time to time. Thank you, Doseki. Absolutely. Hashtag the most interesting men in podcasting. However, if you do want to thank us and help us along here, folks, we would appreciate you going onto iTunes. Literally, it's two clicks. You don't even have to don't even have to leave a comment. Just click on the star reviews. Give us just throw us a bone. Just give us something. It helps keep our mojo working. And speaking of which, That's what I like about
0: you. Hey. the Mojo Radio Show.
1: I had a, an email sent to the studio during the week, and i to read this out. It said, "Gentlemen, I found your interview with Emily, which is Emily Fletcher from Ziva Meditation, quite enlightening. Her knowledge, tone, and passion is addictive." Much like Robbo's addiction to Tim Tams. (laughs) I think many of your questions around the changing perceptions for meditation and it becoming more powerful than caffeine as a natural stimulant to bring more joy, control and balance to our lives was great to hear from Emily. She really is a force and I'll be indulging personally in Ziva and encouraging one of my daughters to do the same one of our listeners, who goes by the handle DB. Isn't that nice? So uh, that is fantastic. That yeah. gets our mojo working. The Tallahassee Lassie made an impact. That was a cracking show. That was
2: awesome show. <laughs> Absolutely. It's rated very well. The other thing, folks, just while I'm doing housekeeping. Hey, listen, if you're doing housekeeping, can you take the French maid's outfit off, though? Well,
1: <laughs> we've got one of our team who's uh, introduced us to Twitter, which is pretty exciting, and you'll find us at... T-M-R-S-P-O-D. So the Mojo Radio Show pod for podcast. Uh, our figures are starting to grow ever so slightly. But if you're interested in what we're doing and stuff we're posting, uh, get online, check us out and uh, send us a tweet as the kids today say. And g'day to Hugh. Good on you, mate. Great job. We interrupt
3: this program to bring you a special <laughs>
0: The Mojo
2: Radio Show. Whoa. We've had some pretty big rock stars on this show. This Today's guest is like the rock star of podcasting, right?
1: Yeah, John Lee Dumas is the guy who started. We started at the hosts EO Fire, Entrepreneur on Fire. It's an award-winning podcast. And what's different about this guy is that he does a show seven days a week. It's a little shorter in terms of how it's produced and put on, but it's mm. every single day. He's done over 1,400 episodes and get this, he's banking around a million dollars a year in revenue through his podcasting and how he goes about doing it. He, He essentially interviews an entrepreneur every single day and he's been into podcasting, as you can see by his numbers, for quite a long time, but he's actually made a business out of it. But- I think the thing I like most about looking at John's stuff and listening to him and his podcast is he's picked up a lot of stuff from the people he's interviewed over the years. So we caught up with John today. We didn't have a long time with him because he has got a busy schedule, but it was an absolute delight to have him on the show. John Lee Dumas welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate.
4: Darren, Gary, there is literally no other place I'd rather be unprepared <laughs> to look
1: Now, listen,
2: if we're going to do an interview with you, there's one rule. You've got to call me Robbo, because if you call me Darren, I won't know you talking to me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> deal.
1: Cool. Mate, I was going to take you back a bit. I'm quite curious to to know, when, when you're a kid, did you ever have an interest in radio or announcers or interviewers? Like, was that something you had an early influence?
4: Nothing. I had no interest in anything to do with broadcasting, interviews, microphones, all the way up till I was 32 years old.
1: You've done thousands of interviews now, big successful show. Tell me about a specific moment during an interview with a guest on EO Fire where something they said had a profound personal influence on you and or your
4: family. Yeah, you know, I can really go back to Brian Tracy. Um, He was somebody who I admired for a long time. I had him on the show and I asked him, What was one of the things that he really looks at and points to as a reason why he was super successful in life? And he said, I always do the thing I want to do least every day first. So whatever it is that he wants to do least, whether it's make 10 outbound phone calls, you know, write a new chapter in his book, you know, fill in the blank. He does Mm. that thing first. And that's the first thing that he does. And he's like, hey, then no matter what happens the rest of the day, I've already gotten the worst part out of the way. You know, it's kind of like working out in the morning. It just feels great because, you know, it sucks because you're tired and you're cold and whatever. But after you're done and you've showered, you're like, man, that is good. I got that in the rearview mirror.
1: If Robo and I are going to send a pod to Mars and on that pod, we are going to send one of your podcasts and It's the one show that in your mind best represents what you and EoFi is as a brand. It's something that personally means a lot to you. What episode would you send?
4: You know, the episode I think I would send would be my first episode with Aaron Walker from uh, View from the Top. And I've had him on the show since multiple times, but it would be the first episode that I did with him because his phrase from success to significance really had a profound impact in my life of, you know, at that point I achieved a lot of success financially with the business in life in general, but it was time for me to kind of move into that next level of, of being significant, of really giving back, you know, in a way of charities and time and energy. And it really, it really has kind of shaped, you know, the last couple of years of my life.
1: So was that, John, just on that, was that an influence that in your mind changed your own personal purpose. We hear a lot today about communities and I suspect the EO5 community is the same is a communities, a lot of them are built on a purpose. Was that episode something which in your mind changed your own purpose and mission in life?
4: Yeah, it really did. It really made me realize that there's no need to wait to make a big impact like financially or effort wise that, you know, the time is now, like we need to live in the moment. We need to make impacts now today. You know, a great example in, in one week from today, from when you and I are chatting, I'm going to Guatemala to tour the, the three schools that we built throughout 2016. Uh, two of them were in Ghana and one of them, uh, two of them were in Guatemala and one of them were, were in Ghana and to really see the impact that we're making through this uh, great organization, Pencils of Promise. And that was really the kind of impetus that got me going, saying, you know, I'm not going to wait till I'm 70, you know, to start giving my money away. Like, I'm, I'm going to start now because I have this mindset of abundance that's, you know, I have more revenue coming my way. And, mm. you know, I'm I'm going to be able to make it. So let's, let's impact lives today.
1: That mindset of abundance is something I think Think Brian Tracy, if I'm correct, talks about just just give me just run that for me. For you personally, what does that mean to have a mindset of abundance?
4: Well, there's really two different mindsets that you can have. You can have that mindset of scarcity. We'll talk about that one first. And that mindset of scarcity is if somebody takes a piece of the pie, that leaves a smaller piece of the pie for me. And you know that's a world that most people live in, and it's definitely in the corporate culture. And it's a sad, sad world because. It's just not the reality. You know, that that fact that when somebody takes a piece of the pie, it's less for everybody else. And you kind of just have this kind of tit for tat kind of back and forth. Whereas on the flip side, that mindset of abundance means, listen, you can have this, you can absolutely have this piece of the pie. And there's still plenty for everybody. And that's the world that we live in right now, where we live in this online digital age where we can literally have Anything we want in this world, if we're willing to put in the time, effort, energy, invest the right way and just make things happen.
1: I've heard you speak about the imposter syndrome, which you at times have had to come face to face with. Did you, when you started this mindset of abundance and you went down that path, did did you have to face a time where you almost had to convince yourself that you're worthy of it, like you deserved it?
4: Absolutely. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, we're humans and we have these fears that are innate and we're not going to get around that. I mean, it's, it's literally at the core of being a human being. We have the fear, we have this imposter syndrome. Who are you to do this? You know, you don't deserve that. You don't, you know, all of these things are always going to be happening around our heads. Like we're never going to be able to conquer these. We just have to embrace these because I still have it to this day, you know, you know, five years later with all of the financial and uh, and other successes that I've had, as well as, by the way, plenty of failures and plenty of disasters too mixed in there. But, you know, it's still still present every day. It's still there. And so, you know, for me, just having that mindset of abundance and saying, listen, like this is the world that we live in. There's so much opportunity out there. All I want is the best for for people out there because I know that if they're doing something great, you know, if Robo and Gary are out there, you know, crushing the world's, Like that's just making it better for me, you know, over here, halfway around the world in Puerto Rico. And that's just a reality because, you know, this world that we live in, is kind of like that. You guys might not be aware of this. I think it was just a a U.S. uh, cartoon back in the day, but it was called Captain Planet. And it was, you know, with our powers combined, we are Captain Planet. And like they would combine all their powers. They become like this unstoppable force. And I really believe that's the world that we live in is that like we can all combine our powers and just make something greater than ourselves.
1: When I hear you talk, John, you when you've got your guests on the show, you quite often refer to the fact that there's highs and lows in everybody's world. And one of the things you like to do is to sort of get down to for each guest is that worst moment for them as a business person or a business leader. You've just mentioned the fact that you've had some failures as we all have. Give me an, an actual example. Of say the last five or six years with e o fire, where it's really gone pear shaped and you've had to recover
4: well, the biggest pear shape really happens, you know, even um before I launched the podcast. you know this was about three months into the journey, so it was when I was already all in, and I had that launch date of August fifteenth, two thousand and twelve, and I woke up that morning terrified, paralyzed with fear the imposter syndrome was literally screaming at me saying, this is going to fail. Like, this is not going to work. Like this is not going to happen. Like you have no rights to launch this podcast. And because of that, guess what? it wasn't a happy ending that day. I didn't launch the podcast as planned. And I let a lot of people down. A lot of my listeners who are waiting for me to launch that podcast, I let them down. And five weeks had to pass before I finally got enough courage to press the publish button and to launch that podcast. And, you know, that was a huge failure. That was a huge uh, mistake. And that really almost sunk my ship even before I left port. And, you know, It's just scary to think what could have happened if I hadn't, you know, finally gotten the courage to press go.
1: People look at you, you're pretty pumped. You ignite people on your podcast. You take them on this journey of energy. I suspect there are moments, whether it's with your charitable work, your podcast work, you and your partner Kate who's involved in the business. I suspect there's probably moments where the darkness does close in. And the imposter syndrome does start to get into John's head. What is your personal process for dealing with that voice, John?
4: Yeah, it's absolutely present. It's never, you know, far away. And for me, I I figured out one of the best things that I can do is control my day-to-day. And the best way that I learned to control my day-to-day is my morning routine. So I have a very structured, very focused morning routine where I wake up, exercise is the first thing that I do. You know, I crush either a long walk or do some, um, you know, pull-ups, push-ups, kettlebells, and really just kind of get that blood pumping. You know, then I'm focusing on meditation, on journaling, on putting the right foods and nutrition into my body early on, really taking care of me for the first 90 minutes of every day, doing some business reading to kind of educate myself. And then and only then do I turn outwards, you know. So that whole 90-minute morning routine it's been about me taking care of me and, and improving my state of mind and my overall state. And then I'm able to move forward from that and say, okay, now how can I turn outwards and serve fire nation best? And so that's kind of been the, the biggest win for me is to have this morning routine that I absolutely will not deviate from.
1: If things are going pear shaped or the darkness is closing in, do you in your mind know that by tomorrow morning, I will go through my routine and and right the wrongs, like it will sort itself out. Do you have the belief in your routine that that's the place to go to to get things back on track?
4: Yeah, and it's not always just one day. And sometimes it takes a couple of days and sometimes it takes maybe a nice long walk. So it's not just like being able to do one thing one time. It might, you know, kind of last more of a longer cycle. But, you know, absolutely knowing what does get me back to center, which is, the meditation, the journaling, the walks, the breathing, the exercise, the nutrition, like the sleep, the hydration—those are the things that are the core pillars of my life. That if I don't continue to focus on one of those things, then you know the house of cards could, could crumble.
1: Tell me, you—I I heard you use a phrase called "you batch your energy." What does that mean?
4: Well, I batch, and so one thing that I do is I have 15 interviews for entrepreneur on fire the first monday of every month and then 15 interviews the first tuesday of every month and I have a lot of people that say john I could never do that like that's just insane like that that many interviews back to back and I could never do that on any given day and I said well neither could I on any given day but the fact that I know that I have 2 days a month that I need to absolutely be at my A game and crush it you know, for me, I kind of compare it to like, you know, an Olympic medalist who's, you know, doing the 50 yard, um, you know, uh, 50, 50 meter sprint and swimming. Like that's their moment. Like they're, they're up, they're pumped and they're going to just crush that one event. And for me, you know, my Olympics are my interviews. That's my one event. And so I have those two days a month that I know that I'm going to give it all. And by, by the end of those two days, like I'm cashed, like I'm going to sleep in, I'm going to chill out the next day. I might do a little, you know, Netflix binge or something. Like I'm going to really just take some time off and that's just fine. But that's how I batch my interviews and that's how I batch my energy. So, you know, I'm not always all on. I'm not always you know, on fire or igniting. Like I have my mellow times. I have my down times. I have my up times. Like I have the cycles that we all have. You know, Tony Robbins is not always jumping up and down, clapping his hands together and screaming. Like, you know, he has his cycles too. And so, you know, for me being able to batch my energy, my focus really helps.
1: See, I don't think people get that, John. I think they look at people like you and think you are the energizer bunny. You are always on.
4: Well, that happens, and that's never gonna stop. I mean, you talk to any actor that's ever played a major role, and everybody that sees them thinks that they're that person. And you know, the, the, the actor's like, "Um, that was a role that I played on TV. Like, I was <laughs> acting. Like, why are you calling me a tool or a you know a dork or you know awesome <laughs> or Like, that was." That was a role that I was playing. And now, you know, I'm not necessarily playing a role when I'm on Entrepreneur Fire. I mean, that really is me. I want to be authentic. But, you know, that's me being, you know, excited and enthusiastic and pumped up about the conversation. But that's not how JLD is 24-7. That's how I am when I really want to focus on bringing my best to each interview for two days a month.
2: I get in that frame of mind when I open a packet of Tim Tams. I'm just going to, I'm just going to blitz it. Yeah, like they're a bit like your Oreos. So I'm sure you feel me there.
4: Oh, my God. That's my Ben and Jerry's pints. Yeah, I open up a <laughs> pint of Ben and Jerry's. Like Kate will look away for one second. She'll look back and she'll be like, what What happened to that pint of ice cream? And I'm like, it's in my belly. Yeah, I inhaled it. In my it.
2: belly. Yeah, I inhaled it. Yeah,
1: nice. John, I'm sure you are a deep work Kel Newport fan. You just mentioned the word focus. With what you have to do with structuring questions, preparing for individual interviews with individual guests that are all going to be personalized, tell me your process for deep work. How does John
4: focus? So focus is a very important word in my life. That's an acronym for me that stands for follow one course until success. So I'm a really big fan of the word focus and of that practice of focus. And that's actually why I created the Mastery Journal, which is Uh, Which is master, focus, productivity, and discipline in 100 days. Like that's the core principles of that book. And within that book, I have the four focus sessions that you have to actually follow that process every single day. And those four focus sessions are the four things that are going to move your business and life forward. So for me, that's what I use every single day to focus. I use the mastery journal, I set up my four focus sessions, and then I execute those four sessions. And then guess what? By the end of the day, I've accomplished more in that day than I used to accomplish all week with those four focus sessions.
1: If we talk about focus for a second, and you've got your mastery journal out, what's the one area of John's world right now that you are looking to improve?
4: I say attention to detail. Um, that's a big um, failure that I have, and I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I'm constantly, you know, sending emails with the wrong information and um, just like not really dotting my I's and crossing my T's on important things that, you know, frankly, um, are impacting my business in a negative way. So, you know, attention to detail is something that I really have to work on. And, you know, that comes comes down to patience, because usually it's just a lack of patience on my end, which is resulting in these type of errors.
1: It's an extraordinary brand that you've created in EO Fire. Just to finish up, what's something we don't know about EO Fire, John? There is a lot written, an amazing amount of podcasts in the world. There are clips on YouTube and Vimeo, there's stuff everywhere. What don't we know about EO
4: Fire? Um, You might not know that the founder of EO Fire won a car on The Price is Right.
2: Come <laughs> on down gold <laughs> you can literally
4: go to YouTube right now and just type John Dumas prices right and you can watch me winning a car on the prices right <laughs> nice do you still have it do you still have the car uh, no I sold the car a week after I got it <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey being an entrepreneur you probably use the money to start EO fire then yeah
4: absolutely uh, I will say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I did.
1: <laughs> John, just, uh, I'm going to let you go in a sec. Just one quick question. You have got this amazing network of people who are interacting with you daily and weekly on podcasting, the podcasting paradise. I'd be curious to know, we've been only at the game for four or five years and, I'd be curious to know what you think, and we come out of radio, so we come out of traditional old school radio, rock and roll radio station. Where do you think the future of podcasts is going to go? If we project forward two, three, four, five years, What's going to happen to the industry of podcasting?
4: You know, I think podcasting has a very special place, and it's going to be—it's going to, hard to uh, be hard to replace that because podcasting—it fills a void for people when they're driving to work. You know, when they used to listen to radio, now they're listening to podcasts. You know, when they go for runs, when they're doing errands around the house, podcasting is never going to become super mainstream because those are the times that it works. Um, and what's going to replace that? There's really nothing to replace on-demand audio with on-demand audio. So it's going to continue to have a special place and a certain percentage of the population. And I just don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. Um, You know, as the Facebook lies of the world battle it out for video supremacy, et cetera, et cetera. And virtual reality comes out, that's all going to happen and and be the majority focus for people. But podcasting is going to have that nice little cozy, niche that it's not going to relinquish anytime soon.
2: Here's one that I'm interested in and I can't get an answer to from anyone who of any d- reasonable authority. Do you think big business sees dollar signs here and is, you know, scheming ways to start making money or do you think biz- big business will stay out of this?
4: Yes. To answer your question. John, there you
2: go. okay. Well, nothing like a short sixing dancer. I think I think
1: our time's up, Robbo. <laughs> I think I just heard the Hootie go. That, that was very
4: intuitive. That was very intuitive. But no, the the the, the, the quick answer to that question is uh, yes. Uh, big business sees dollar signs. They're coming for us. the uh, The professionals are coming, and that's just reality.
2: Well, you know, we've got. Entrepreneur on fire in the mojo radio show here to save the little yes. independent world, right?
1: Yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> John, where for people who don't know you, who want to know you, where do you send them? All the magic happens
4: at eofire.com.
1: Good on you, mate. We appreciate your time. We know how much you have got going on, and it's been a real privilege and an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, John. Take care, guys. Hi, I'm Lee Waters, professor in positive psychology. You were
5: always on my mind.
1: I usually have a positive outlook on
6: life unless I'm listening to Robbo and Gary on The Mojo Radio Show.
0: The Mojo Radio Show. Now, he
2: might make a million dollars a year out of his show, but does he get free beer? I don't even
1: know if he drinks beer. I think (laughs) he's too busy. He certainly would drink a lot of coffee getting through all those shows. Yeah, a show a day. Isn't that nuts? That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but that's your point of difference because it is a lot of work. No one else is doing it. Mm. If you can do it and you're determined enough, uh, and see, it's interesting for him because the success of how he's grown to be one of the biggest shows in the world is that because he's got seven entrepreneurs he's interviewing every day, he's got seven people each week sharing his stuff around the world on social. So he has built himself. An amazing marketing platform, and yes, sure it's a lot of work. But he figures if I put the work in, no one else is doing it. And secondly, then I get seven people each week spruking the work that I'm doing on my show. And he has used the entrepreneurs to market himself, so it's it's bloody clever.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's not a bad business model, is it? Get someone else to get your name out there.
1: It's a Mojo Show Double, double shot, shot Monday.
3: Monday.
1: So the second interview we have for you today, folks, is with a couple of filmmakers. Now, if you ask the average person about eating bugs, chances are the reply you get will be, yuck. New York-based filmmakers Joanna B. Kelly and Cameron Machard have produced a new feature-length documentary and it's called The Gateway Bug. We've been following bugs for a couple of years now on the show and you will remember we had lucas from grillo protein who is getting after it on the show a couple of months back lucas introduced us to cameron and joanna just after they had done their premiere for the gateway bug it's a really interesting concept because as you'll hear during the interview bugs are prevalent they are nutritionally dense the problem and the challenge for all of us is getting around this yuck factor. This guy's launched their whole campaign for the documentary on Kickstarter. They haven't done it easy. They've put it all on the line. They certainly are getting after it, but we thought we'd catch up with these guys. A bit of a chat about the journey so far with the gateway bug. So, Joanna, Cameron, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks. Great Thanks for to be here. It's um this is interesting because this has been a journey we have been on for a little while now, and I'll come to our mutual friend shortly. But The Gateway Bug, I've seen the trailer. It sounds like globally it's going super well for you. Just give us a snapshot. What What is the film all about, The Gateway Bug?
6: Uh, basically, the film is about the current industrialised agricultural processes and how it's failing, how it's significantly contributing to the climate change and global warming we're seeing today, and how people can make really small shifts in their everyday habits and with just with each meal they're eating to try to improve that on a personal level. We look at it from the perspective of how eating bugs can save the world. But the whole film is really about all of the little things we can do from composting to aiming towards zero waste, so being mindful at the grocery store to to buy food according to meals and not just according to which aisle you happen to be walking down. Um, to think about our farming practices in a more sustainable, holistic way. You know, we've lost 91% of the Amazon Um, due to industrialised agricultural processes. We're using 80% of fresh water for that reason. I think if we want to address global warming, we need to address the triggers that are creating it.
1: For either one of you to answer, but has the direction, when you started filming, so I saw the trailer, which you said was made even before you started kind of putting this whole thing together. Along the way, did the direction of the film change as you started to get more into it hearing opinions discovering statistics looking at real world situations did you find it starting to sort of curve a bit away from where you had originally thought it would go
6: so basically we were cutting the film we had our stories we had our characters we sort of had an idea of where we wanted it to go and then suddenly everything changed And I think that really gave us the dramatic ending that the film has it gives us a great character arc because it tells us that you know these characters thought one thing and then something else happened and I think that real life is always the best kind of story.
1: Let's just camp there for a second and I'd like to sort of understand the genesis of this. They say today that good entrepreneurial ideas start where you solve your own problem You mentioned it to a few friends who love the idea, and then it becomes commercialized. Why, what was the backstory for you guys? Why was this, why was making this film so important to you both personally?
6: I think that we were really shocked to learn the horrible negative effects of the current industrialized food complex and its significant contribution to global warming and climate change. And when we started talking to a bunch of the characters in our film and learning that there was so much that individuals could do on a daily basis, We just really felt compelled to share that story and tell everybody about it. If we can all change our habits by shifting one meal a day or one meal a week, we can all have a significant impact on reducing global warming, which improves um, reducing climate change. And we were really compelled from the very first story we heard about the bug eating to make a documentary to to call to arms audiences to, to act on this?
5: I think it was, for me, it was just a genuine curiosity about, you know, um, learning more about the industrialized agricultural system that we have. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it started from this one brunch meeting that we had with our friend Tyler Isaac, who is uh, who's a star of the film. He was working out of uh, UCSB University of California, Santa Barbara. And he was doing his thesis program there. And he was basically challenged to create a business idea that solves an ecological problem. And that ecological problem that he saw was that we're vastly overfishing the oceans of these really important feeder fish like sardines and anchovies. Uh, And what we were using them for was going back and feeding them to farmed fish. And he saw that as quite illogical. Mm. So, you know, he saw a solution in edible insects both from a feed perspective, and he also started telling us about how humans started eating insects, obviously thousands of years ago, um, but also more recently in Western culture. Uh, you see some companies like ExoProtein and Chapul uh, Protein Bars integrating uh, roasted cricket powder in uh protein
1: bars in in doing in making the documentary you spoke to you had your characters you spoke to a lot of scientists researchers a wide variety of people what were the most apart from the environmental impact which we've kind of covered what were the most compelling nutritional benefits that you found that can come from bugs
6: Well, I think that's a really important factor of our film because one of the issues we tackle is the sort of nutritional and dietary problems we have in the West right now. People often ask us, you know, why are we so focused on the West in our film? And I think one of the main reasons is the West are really suffering because of their diet. We've got this epidemic of diabetes, obesity, heart disease. And I think bugs have some pretty good strategies to overcome that. We obviously need to reduce our fat and sugar intake, but I think we're also finding a lot of malnutrition in people that shouldn't be malnutritioned, and that's because they're eating overly processed food or they're failing to get the nutrients they need. So one of the really cool things about crickets, which is considered the gateway bug and the insect we discuss most in our film,
3: Mm.
6: is that not only do they need 12 times less feed than cattle, so they're far more sustainable producing less ammonia and methane, but nutritionally, they have twice the protein of beef, more calcium than milk, all nine essential amino acids, and more iron than spinach. So they're pretty much a superfood. They also have fiber, which very few proteins can offer.
1: When I first met the guys from Grillo, Lucas and the team, I was fascinated by what they were doing because, oh, gee, a couple of years ago I read online about chirps, which was like a corn chip made from crickets, and straight away. I got fascinated by that, and I would talk to people about it, and they would automatically screw their nose up and go, "Oh, yuck!" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The yuck fact is really common. Yeah, how do we get? Is that changing? Do you think, Joanna? Are we are we getting around this yuck factor? We know nutritionally it's a good thing. Bugs are plentiful; they're easier to produce. Yet people haven't tasted them or tried them, but go yuck. Are we getting through that?
5: People are starting to integrate them into food in a better way, a more tasty way. But we're also seeing uh, the media focusing on it in a more positive light as well and focusing on the sustainability aspects of it, focusing on the nutritional aspects of it. Mm.
6: And so it's really a twofold thing. It's a yuck factor and it's also accessibility. So since coming to Australia for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, we've found that bugs are a lot harder to access to eat here. Then in America, in America, those products we've been talking about, the exoproteins, the Chapul, the Chaps chips, you can get them on Amazon, Fresh Direct, in Equinox Gyms. You can get get them anyway, no matter where you live. You know what I mean? In Australia, you've really got to seek it out. You've got to write to the companies personally. You can't just go down to Coles or Safeway and pick up some bug products off the shelf. So I think accessibility is one of the main things. We've found in our film screenings that once people have tried eating products with the bugs, their yuck factor flips 180. They are grossed out by the idea and as soon as they eat them, they're no longer grossed out, you know. It's like the sushi thing. And then I think the other thing is the yuck factor. And like anything, also like sushi that's about the exposure. It's about seeing the food in normal food contexts rather than seeing a creepy crawly on the street. You're seeing it on your plate in a cafe at brunch. It's about other people having experienced it and telling you, oh, yeah, like you said this morning, I had, I had crickets for breakfast. You know, it's about exposure to them as a food source rather than anything else.
1: It's not new, is it? I mean, this does go back thousands of years to oh, yeah. generations, she- generations.
6: It's it's happening right now. Two billion people on Earth are eating it. This is this whole conversation is a purely Western construct for Westerners. If we tried to have this conversation in Mexico, everyone would laugh and just be like, "Yeah, everyone eats insects."
5: And and an interesting note that um, someone in the industry, her name is Julie Lesnick. She actually organized the Eating Insects Detroit conference um, that we attended and and shot some footage at. And it was why it was it was basically like. I think it was the second uh, big uh, conference that the industry has had. The first one was in the Netherlands in 2014 or so. And it was really, it was attended by a lot of people from all over the world. And Julie put on a presentation talking about how chimps uh, and primates have evolved based on termite fishing. So when you look at chimps putting a stick down into termite mounds, they're fishing out termites and they, you know, enough nutrition to uh, develop their brains to be where they are now based on, the, based on the insects that they're eating.
2: I know it's a hard sell right now in terms of getting Westerners to sort of see what you're saying and go, yeah, sure. But do you think there's a day down the track where instead of walking down the road and ducking into the convenience store for a packet of crisps or going to the you, you know do you think there'll be a day when we'll go to the fruit store and say hey I've got to pick up some apples some oranges oh and I need a bag of crickets do you think that day will come
6: I think the day has come man I think that like America where we've just come from that's happening we meet plenty of people who are like yeah I eat bugs we feature some in the film like um model and student and teacher Therese Park she when we asked her we were telling her about the film she was like oh I've eaten bugs for ages and I think that Europe is further ahead than America, so we haven't hit Europe yet, but there it is considered fine and normal. And I think Australia is probably towards the end of the the line in terms of where we're at with yuck factor and knowledge. But again, it's accessibility, it's exposure. I think that in no time at all, like in the next five to ten years,
1: it'll be completely normal. In your travels... And in the trailer, you went to lots of different places, I spoke to lots of different people who were doing bugs of different varieties, and there are thousands of different varieties of bugs we could delve into. And they're being cooked in a load of different ways. For each of you personally, what was the most tasty bug that you enjoyed and to this day I remember and go, oh, that was good?
5: This one was pretty interesting. It was actually at the Eating Insects Detroit conference. And uh, alongside David Gracer, who is a well-known entomophagist in the entomophagy community, he's based in Rhode Island, he was at the conference and he stuck his finger into this vial that contained um, this purged bat product, which is a result of grinding up black soldier flies. Uh, dried black soldier flies, so the fat is a byproduct of that process. And he stuck his finger in. And he uh, tried it. And he described it as this kind of curry ghee butter uh, product. So that, and you know, when he tried that, I really wanted to try it as well. So I did the same, <laughs> and it was it was really really good. It's like this curry lentil butter. Uh, it's really orange, bright orange in color, and uh, that was probably the most. Um, wild and tasty uh, bug products that I've tried.
1: So I read a story about a guy who was having a soup in a an insect or a bug type cafe or restaurant and he said it was like a normal soup. Then I got to a point where I saw this head with two eyes sticking out of my soup and I realised that I was eating bugs. And he said, but when I got my head around it, so to speak, it was it was very enjoyable and I loved it. With that yeah. in mind... You talked about people being in your screening. What I've, what I've always been fascinated by is there is a vegan or a vegetarian sitting in the audience. We're talking about insects and bugs, of which there are thousands of different varieties we could choose: ants, crickets, so on. How what's that? What's been your take on the perception of vegans and vegetarians to insect as? Uh, food
5: uh, we've actually had a mixed response and the majority of the response from vegans uh, specifically uh, has been that they're kind of for uh, edible insects because ultimately it's reducing uh, the consumption of meat that's uh, produced in slaughterhouse fashion and uh, you know the way that insects are harvested right now in a, from a farmed perspective it's actually quite uh humane uh you know they're they're raised in bins, open bins, and what happens is you basically put them to sleep by putting them in a, uh, in a deep freezer. Not even, actually, we've talked to some farmers who are putting them in refrigerators, then freezers to kind of ease uh, the transition, and then it's a dehydration or a roasting process. And, and for the vegetarian front, a lot of vegetarians have been interested in, in eating them. Um, so we've had ultimately a positive response from, from those guys.
2: What's been the biggest reaction that you've seen from people who are trying this stuff for the first time in terms of, um, you know, where you're expecting them to turn their nose up, you know, what's been the best reaction you've seen from someone?
6: I've got to say the reactions are surprisingly similar. Hmm. Most people are scared to eat. And then as soon as they eat, they're surprised at how, fine it is how unscary how ungross. they're like like in our film we have we shot a bunch of stuff in Times Square of just regular people on the street tasting them and they're like uh, oh, it tastes like chips you know how funny it tastes like popcorn and I think really the the overriding response we get is surprise that they taste so normal that's that's the biggest response we receive
1: why is why is the cricket your gateway bug—it's something that was mentioned a number of times during the film, and, and a variety of people have talked about cricket being the gateway bug. Why? Why is that the case?
5: Well, in the U.S. and uh, U.S., Mexico, Thailand, there's been an existing cricket rearing industry. Uh, in Thailand, there's been twenty-there are over twenty thousand uh, family farms that exist that raise crickets in Mexico you see similar numbers and in the US there's been an industry raising crickets for the um amphibian market and for the for the zoo market so you know shipping live crickets around the country for uh snakes and mice etc so there's this existing infrastructure uh and also there are crickets you've seen crickets in the media um and you know it's just a It's an easier thing to get into because I think humans have already been, at least in the West, have already been kind of normalized to uh, crickets being this friendly uh, animal.
1: Filmmaking is a tough business and you hear lots of different stories about funding and what people put into producing a film or a documentary. What's what's the toll, what's the What's it cost you guys personally to do this film? It's a passion for you. We've heard the backstory, why it's important to you, but what has been the impact on you personally or how much have you had to put into this to make the film?
6: It's pretty brutal. It's, we've had to put in everything, <laughs> all of our time, all of our money, all of our energy. We're likely to receive virtually none of it back. So it's definitely <laughs> passion. It's passion. Um, it's lucky we love doing it because you certainly wouldn't do it for many other reasons. You know, we're indie filmmakers. We're not. We're not Paramount Studios over here. I'm aware that some people are making money in this industry, but it's certainly not the indie documentary filmmakers. Um, so far, we've invested two and a half years of our lives combined. Mm. We've we've worked part time to fit in other jobs around this so that we could continue to eat and pay rent and that kind of thing. Um, And we have suffered a lot financially because of this. Um, In fact, we, you know, it's entirely self-funded. So whatever we didn't pay for, equipment borrowed, couches slept on, we have raised in Kickstarter, which is what we did to fund the post-production process because there are just some things we can't do. But we did almost every role on this film and we're still doing it. We're doing this press right now. We're doing distribution deals. We're doing our own marketing. You know, it's a passion and you have to really believe in your product. So I'm grateful that we were able to create the film we created. I think that with all the whinging of how much we've put into it, what that has done is allow us a creative control that is rare in the arts in general. We don't have anybody telling us that we have to change anything or do anything a certain way and it means that really what the film is is what we believe in and what we're really proud of. With
1: documentaries, and I heard Rich Roll talk about Cowspiracy and that went through the cinemas and I heard the boys at The Minimalist talk about their documentary and that went through the cinemas, everything seems to end up on Netflix is that part of the dream for you guys? I mean, does that help you? Is it a financial thing? Is it just an awareness thing? I, I just don't I don't quite understand how a filmmaker makes a film. It goes through cinemas, it does the festivals that ends up on Netflix. Is being on Netflix a good thing?
5: It could be. It depends. Uh, you know, getting on Netflix is definitely a good way to get your name out there and say, hey, my film is on Netflix. Um, it may not necessarily be the most financially viable option for you. Um, But it certainly is a good way to get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible.
6: And I think with a story like ours, we're trying to spread a message of awareness. We're trying to share knowledge. So for us, the more people that see this film, the better. We hope to empower people to really make a difference. So for us, a Netflix or an Amazon or a Hulu or a Stan or whatever whatever you've got... We want to see our film absolutely everywhere and it's and it's not an ego thing. We just want as many people to learn this stuff as possible because the only way change is going to happen is for people to be informed.
1: Mm. How do we see it now or how, how do people get a hold of it now, Joanna? What do we do?
6: Well, right now you'll have to fly to the next city that is screening at a festival <laughs> but as I said, we're... um. We're mid-distribution deal, so hopefully we're looking for a November release in 2017, and then it'll be far more accessible in any one of the places we were just talking about, be it on iTunes, be it on on, um, Netflix. It'll it'll be very available by the end of this year. But in the meantime, people can follow our social media. We're very active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And on our website, thegatewaybug.com, we have a screenings and events page that we keep pretty up-to-date. Which means you can check if it's coming to your city anytime soon.
1: Well, Lucas and the guys at Grillo Protein are good mates of the Mojo Radio Show, and I think it's fair to say that Robbo and I are insectivores, so we've bought into we've bought into the notion of what you're doing, and it's part of our brekkie each day. And uh, I believe Lucas and Grillo Protein have got a new energy bar that is being launched in a couple of weeks' time, so we will bring that to the listeners as well. But guys, um, thanks for sharing. It's just uh, I think you're your film from what i've seen in the trailer would sit so beautifully on netflix it's such such a great message and i think to turn people to alternatives which are not only good for the planet but nutritionally dense and good for us. I think um, it's a great message. Well done and um you know, thanks for sharing with us. We appreciate it.
6: Thank you so much. Thanks for having us on to help spread the word.
1: The Mojo radio show. Slimmer down, your noisy,
0: screaming,
1: thing. Okay, this could be a tenuous link to finish the show, but it's been a big <laughs> show so we're going to get out. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to get out uh, pretty quick. Mm. But when I think of bugs, mm. I think of rock and roll and a guy standing in front of the world's biggest audiences on the biggest stage as the mm. greatest rock band in the world mm. with flashing screens and videos playing behind uh. him wearing these massive big glasses and he looks like the fly. Mm-hmm. So I think to take us out, yep. we don't often eat bugs but when we do, we eat crickets. <laughs> we don't often drink beer but when we do, we drink Dos Equis. Yeah. Cheers. We're out.
0: Andrew
3: Peters speaking. See you next time.